Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the book of Colossians, a small New Testament letter. A lot of the verses will be up on the screen behind me, so you don't need a Bible if you don't have one. We're going through this book. We started going through it in the fall of last year. Now we took a break around Christmas and uh, month of January to focus on some other things. We're getting back to it now, and we're about halfway through. Four chapters in the book, but if you add up the verses, we're about halfway through this letter. But since it was almost two months ago that we were last in this letter, looking at what Paul writes to the church at Colossae, let me take a few minutes to remind us about why it was written, what the context is, and sort of what the message is. Remember, we said the Apostle Paul hadn't been to this church, unlike other letters that he had written to churches. He had been to the church at Ephesus for some time, and he writes to them, this church he hasn't been to before. There's a guy named Epaphras who seems to be the go-between. It seems as though he was converted under Paul's ministry. He took the message of the gospel of Christ back to this area of Colossae and the city surrounding it. The gospel spread there. Sometime after, he reports back to Paul with news about how it's going there in Colossae and the city surrounding it. And he really says two things. One is positive, one is negative. On the one hand, there are many encouraging signs of genuine faith and fruit among these Christians in Colossae. But there are also some concern about false teachings that are popping up now. False teachings in the area that are beginning to encroach upon these faithful churches. So it doesn't say that they had embraced this false teaching. Paul's just warning them about it. Perhaps they were listening to it. Perhaps they were considering it. Paul kind of sees this as an opportune time to jump in and warn them of the dangers of this false teaching that's been hawked in their city as of recently. So he writes to them. He writes to them to encourage them in what they've already come to know and believe and embrace and, and cherish and to warn them not to turn to this cheap, false substitute that's being peddled around their church. He says Jesus Christ is the preeminent Lord and the all-sufficient Savior. He really breaks it down like this if you want to look at just chapter headings in your Bible. Of course, these chapter headings came much after the actual writing of these letters in the first century. Sometimes they're a, a great division, right? It, it's, a, it's a clear division, and sometimes not. Sometimes you'd say, well, look, it seems like the flow of thought goes on into the next chapter, and maybe if we were redoing it now, we wouldn't have made the chapter break right here. It doesn't really matter. The chapter headings and verse numbers are there just so we can locate them in our Bibles when we look together. But the outline goes like this. It breaks down pretty cleanly in the book of Colossians. Chapter 1 is about believing in Christ's preeminence, trusting it, believing in his preeminence in redemption, believing in his preeminence in creation, in the whole spiritual realm, his preeminence in the church. He is Lord over all, no matter where it is and no matter how big it is. Believing in Christ's preeminence is chapter 1. Chapter 2 is defending Christ's preeminence. We said when we outlined this book many months ago. I'll come back to that in just a minute. That's where Paul talks about this false teaching. Chapter 2. 
And then a third section, chapters 3 and 4, are living under Christ's preeminence. So believing in Christ's preeminence, chapter 1. Then defending Christ's preeminence, chapter 2. And then living under Christ's preeminence. Chapters 3 and 4, he talks about the new identity that Christians have in Christ. And now they should have unity in the church. There's a way in which Christ's preeminence should be reflected in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, even in your work, whether you're a boss or or under a boss, in proclamation and in service. All these things get very practical in chapters 3 and 4. We look forward to getting there, but we're not there yet. We're in this section of chapter 2, as I said, which is about this false teaching. What is this false teaching that Paul is so concerned about for this church and this city? Well, it's something that was later to be called Gnosticism. That word didn't come along until about 2nd century, but in the 1st century, you see something of this Gnosticism or hidden knowledge. Really, any kind of secret society, no matter how clandestine you think they are, no matter how secretive, no matter how malicious you might think they are, any secret society by nature has something of Gnosticism as their approach to knowledge. We have the secret inside knowledge. And you, you get it at sort of at a base value when you first enter, but the higher up the pyramid you go, the more intimate this information gets, the more secret this information is, and hence the more important it is to, to get it. Well, this kind of Gnosticism was starting to infiltrate this church where these false teachers were saying there's a kind of spiritual fullness that you can't get from the Bible and you can't get from Jesus, and we have the secrets. We've mapped it out. We know the chart. We can, we can point you in the right direction if you take step one and then take step two and... And then we'll reveal more as it goes along. So it's very elitist. We'll also see today it's very legalistic. It's about law, rules. It's very manipulative. There's a kind of tyranny about it. And it's also what we might call syncretistic. Big word, it just means mingling of a bunch of different thoughts and schools of thought together. So this is a kind of Christianity mingled with Old Testament Judaism, mingled with good old-fashioned paganism, mingled with new ideas, new philosophies about how to approach, how to approach the spiritual, mystical realm and how to have success. Well, Paul has been saying literally dozens of different ways, different times in this this wonderful letter, Christian, you already have the fullness of Christ. You already have everything you need. The message of the New Testament, the message of Christ, is not Christ plus something, whatever that something is. It's Christ plus nothing. And with Christ, you have everything. You have everything. So now look with me at chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 13. He says, In you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you 
in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, that is the church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, if you have a Bible open, keep looking down and look at verses 18 and 19 compared to what we just read. Next week, we'll focus on verses 18 and 19. This week, I want to focus on the verses just before and just after. I think we'll see how these verses go together. That is, how verse 16 and 17 go with verse 20 on down to verse 23. Now, if you're visiting with us, there's something you should know. It doesn't get cooler than this here at Desert Springs. It doesn't get more sophisticated than this. Here at Desert Springs, we just open the Bible, and we just look at the words, and we just try to understand it and try to apply it to our lives. And so we really go by just word after word, trying to understand what it's saying as God gave these letters in their historic, original purpose and setting. So I want to talk about four E's. Four E's came to mind as I study these verses this week. Encouragement, examples, explanation, and then elaboration. The first, if you're taking notes, encouragement. There's freedom in Christ. That's the encouragement. Freedom in Christ, according to verse 16. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Or we could put it in a more positive, encouraging way. You see, it's stated as a negative. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. What that means is, in Christ, you're free. In Christ, there is freedom. Realize your freedom. Walk in that freedom. Feel free in Christ. In John 8, Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. He makes us free. No one else. It's related to what he said in Luke chapter 12 where he said, don't fear people, don't fear men. The worst they can do is kill you. Oh, I know that sounds really bad, but Jesus said, fear him instead who can kill you and destroy you in hell forever. In other words, honor God, bow before him, care what he thinks and how he judges in the end of time. Don't fear men. Instead, let the preeminent Lord fully be your Lord and your lawgiver. But you can also think of it in this way. Isn't Paul also implying that we shouldn't wrongly pass judgment on others? Yes, he says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. 
But let's not forget the church does its fair job passing judgment on others. And we, at times, do our fair job of passing judgment wrongly on others. Now, we have to make clear, there's right and wrong judgment. This passage isn't telling us that all judgment is wrong. No, you find verses in the Bible that are encouraging Christians to judge correctly. We call it discernment, to discern between this and that. To decide that that thing's wrong and this thing's right is, in a sense, to judge. It also means that we help each other on a personal level in fighting sin together. You know, it does say in Scripture that we, we shouldn't be hypocritical in our judgment of others. First, remove the log from your own eye. Even the secular world knows that phrase from the Bible. But they miss the fact that Jesus goes on to say, once you remove the log from your own eye, you can help your brother see his speck. Of course, it's hypocritical to say, let me help you with that. And you have a two-by-four coming out of your eye socket. That's absurd. Here, you got something in your eye. Let me get that for you. It's absurd. But... Without this log in my eye, now I am, in a sense, my brother's keeper. I'm my brother's helper. And speck removal is a corporate enterprise. But Colossians 2.16, when it says, let no one pass judgment on you, isn't talking about that kind of thing. What it means is that we have to be very careful to not play God. Let's be very careful to not say things for him. He hasn't said. We're talking about legalism. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's used a lot in churches. We define it pretty rarely, though. What does it mean? What is a legalist? What is legalism? Well, I came across this this week. Four different kinds of legalists, written by a professor at Covenant Seminary, Dan Doriani. I've enjoyed his writings over the years. And this is a helpful, different fourfold diagnosis of different kinds of legalists. He says, first, there are those who are attempting self-salvation. They're trying to earn their way to God and to earn their way to his favor. Secondly, a legalist could be those who are doing good deeds to try to keep God's favor and salvation. Maybe they think you get in by grace, but you keep it by performance. That's a legalist. Or third, there are those who love the law so much, they create new ones. And they require these of others. Or fourth, maybe this sounds like you. It sounds like me at times. You so accentuate obedience and holiness and the newness of life, things which are all true and real, but you accentuate them in a way that sounds a note of performance. Again, everything they say in this kind of legalism is true in a sense, but the whole tenor is one of oppression, not love and joy and peace and happiness in the Holy Spirit. Whether you have any four of these kinds of legalism, and I'm sure that you have at least one or more, we need to note legalism is sin. It's a sin which produces blindness. 
and bondage. All sin really does, right? Sin is by nature blinding. The more you do it, the more you don't even see that you do it. Right? The more you do a specific sin, the more you're bound to it. And it's that way too with legalism. The more we do it, the more we're blind to it, the more we're comfortable in it, the more we're bound to keep it. Legalism is a kind of false teaching, if you think about it. When you require something of another Christian that God has not said in his word, you are acting as a kind of false teacher. Worse, you're competing with Jesus. Jesus alone is judge and lawgiver. Legalism has led many toward disillusionment at first. We can't do it. We can't keep up. There's no joy in this. This isn't life-giving. And it can even lead to apostasy. That is, those who leave the faith. They appear to have had it, and then eventually they give up on it. And yet, legalism is within all of us. It's what we repented of. It's what we turned from, Christian, when we came to faith. But it's dying a slow death, isn't it? It's dying a slow death and it's putting up a persistent fight. And so much of our Christian growth, growing in the gospel, growing in the knowledge of Christ, growing in more obedience to him, more conduct like him, is a fighting with the dragon of legalism. And yet legalism is so appealing because we want our laws, our do's and our don'ts to be Concrete, objective and clear, tangible. We want it black and white whether we did it or not. We want to know that we've done the things that we should do and we can check them off our list and feel good about them. We want to know whether others are doing their checklist. We want to be very clear about who stands where, how I stand today, how you stand right now. We want to quantify spirituality. That's a concept the Bible doesn't have. So much of the New Testament commandments are less vague. I'm sorry, more vague than this. They're more like principles. They're, they're more like priorities. They, they address the heart. For example, we're told to pray in Scripture. We're even told how to pray, what to pray for. We're told to pray often. That's not enough for us. We're not told how long to pray. How often to pray. So I don't know if I've done enough praying at the end of the day. I want to know, right? I want to be able to know whether I did enough praying today. And the Bible doesn't say a half hour and you're good. Do that and then do whatever you want. We're not told even exactly what to say. And so even when we pray earnest prayers, we wonder whether we could have prayed more earnest prayers and been more selfless in our prayers and prayed for other people in different ways. Oh, legalism is appealing, and it's appealing for all the wrong reasons. That's the encouragement. Avoid those who teach this stuff and avoid it in your own heart and life too. Secondly, second E is examples. Paul gives the examples here of Jewish rituals at the end of verse 16. He says, let no one pass judgment on you. Here are the specifics. In questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, Old Testament alert. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, 
That's what Paul's talking about here. So if you're not a Christian, if you're new to Christianity, the Bible's kind of new to you. There'll be a lot of concepts in what follows here that you might not be familiar with. I would just say, hang on, hold on to your hat, and then as time goes along, maybe these things will kind of get straightened out a little bit more. And we'll talk about the overarching principle that applies to you and me, whether you have any connection with the Old Testament, whether you have any connection with Judaism or not. We'll talk about that in a bit. But no doubt these things Paul lists in verse 16 are about Old Testament Judaism. They're not just about Old Testament Judaism. Remember that word I just used, syncretism? You know, sort of the influx of all these different ideas. It's a kind of Christianity being taught here in the city of Colossae. It's a kind of Old Testament Judaism. It's a kind of mystical paganism. It's a bunch of man-made rules and teaching. Well, you see in verse 18 and 19, Paul isn't confronting anything with Old Testament Judaism. There he's confronting a, this newly conceived mysticism and spirituality. And yet, at other times in chapter 2, he's clearly confronting something that is related to Old Testament Judaism. And as he's confronting that, he's telling us something about how the Old Testament and New Testament fit together. It's an old, big, rather complex question and answer, an issue for the Bible and for Christians. Christians frequently ask, how does the Old Testament law apply to me, a 21st century Christian? Well, let me give three examples. Paul gives them from the Old Testament from which he says Christians are free They used to be applicable to God's people in the past, but now they're free from obligation of these things, free from the judgment from those who would try to impose these things on God's people. The first is related to diet, food or drink. In Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, the Bible gives us certain laws about what to eat and what not to eat. You know, You know probably that Jewish people today who are kosher don't eat ham. That's because of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. It gave certain foods that you can eat and certain foods that you can't eat. Now, why these foods? Why God gave a menu? It's highly debated. Some would say it's unknown. Only God knows why he said this thing's good, that thing's bad. Others would say... God was giving them a guide to healthier foods. Therefore, pork is bad. You'll be healthier if you skip it. I instead would think that the, rele- the reason God gave these laws like he did is that there's some symbolism involved in it. In other words, they were told to eat things that are normal and right. In a sense, everything in this earth that God created is normal and right, right? It's made just the way it should be made in a sense, so in that sense, okay, everything is normal and right, but in another sense, there's a kind of symbolism, I think, that God is getting at through this diet where he's saying, eat fish because fish swim in a sea, and that seems normal. And yet don't eat the things that walk at the bottom of the sea not necessarily because they're dirtier and you'll be healthier to avoid them, but because, it's not, in a sense, it's not right, right? They're in water. What are they doing walking, right? 
This may not convince you at all. I wish I could spend more time trying to convince you of this symbolic view of why God gave an Old Testament diet. I'll, if you email me, I'll send you an article or two on it. But I think what it's getting at is that there is a symbol to be had about obedience and cleanness and rightness and that it's supposed to pervade all of life, even the mundane things like diet. But regardless of why, it's clear from Acts 10 that in Christ these laws have ceased. Let me just read you a section of Acts chapter 10. Here's the story of one guy, a Jewish guy, hearing this for the first time and freaking out a little. Peter. Acts chapter 10 and then verse 10. He's on the housetop. He's praying and then he... I'm comforted to read this. He's interrupting his prayer because he's hungry. Verse 10. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth, and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The things Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 tell us not to eat. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, we can skip ahead to verse 28. The story goes on. Peter's told to go find a guy named Cornelius, who isn't a Christian. Well, he's not a a Jewish uh, believer. He's a a believer, believer in Christ. In verse 28... He's explaining what happened. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, remember, the vision was about animals, food. And then at the end, Peter interprets it as people. You see, there was something of Jewish identity in that diet prescribed in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. And in Christ now, the gospel goes forth into all the world. And it's not just a, it's not just a national religion. It's not just a Jewish religion. It's a global religion. And now there's oneness in Christ. Gentiles eat whatever the heck they want to eat. That's what I eat. I eat whatever I want to eat. Right? Well, whatever my wife tells me to eat. Um, and then whatever I get to sneak in when she's not around. No, I'm just kidding. Um, different issue. But, but you get the point that there's no menu for Gentiles. It's whatever you want on the menu. That's what they eat. And so this table fellowship, Jew and Gentile together eating whatever they want. Peter interprets this, this vision of eating anything eating things that were frequently or previously forbidden, now as sort of a a way in which the whole table has been turned about who the people of God are, Jew and Gentile alike, diet no longer defining one or the other. The laws have changed. You see it in Acts 10, and you see the principle in 
Colossians 2.16. He also talks about festivals and feasts, things like Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Yom Kippur, these kinds of feasts would have been related to what he means by festival. And then he also talks about calendar, or Sabbath specifically. You see that? He says, let no one judge you regarding food or drink or festival or new moon or Sabbath. Now, some say that this verse doesn't have anything to do with the weekly Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment. You shall honor the Sabbath, right? You shall rest on the last day of the week. Some would say instead what Colossians 2.16 is referring to is the yearly Sabbaths, like Passover and Pentecost and Day of Atonement. But notice there's a chronological progression here in Colossians 2. You see, it says festivals, new moon, Sabbath. That is, festivals were yearly, a new moon was monthly, Sabbath weekly. Now, if it just said Sabbath and didn't give us this progression, then it might be up for debate what kind of Sabbath he's referring to. There were other Sabbaths. There were yearly Sabbaths, and there were even some decade-like Sabbaths. You know, every 70 years there's a Sabbath. Every seventh year you have to let the land rest. But with this progression, it's fairly unmistakable what Paul's getting at here. He's saying no one is to judge you, Christian, regarding the practice of weekly Sabbath-keeping. Now, let me quickly qualify. That doesn't mean that it isn't wise to rest. The Sabbath was all about resting, right? You rest on that day. You don't do work on that day. So this verse, Colossians 2.16, isn't telling us, that goes out the window. You don't even need rest anymore. No, we do need rest. In fact, there might be something of a six-and-one work and rest principle sort of buried right in creation remember god works six days and on the seventh he rested and this definitely doesn't mean that there's nothing special about the lord's day today is special not just because it's super bowl sunday but because it's the lord's day every sunday is special for the christian we gather together as a church to hear the preaching of God's word, to sing together, to pray together, because on this day, Sunday, Christ rose from the dead. And and that's the cornerstone of our faith. That's the cornerstone of what we believe and why the church exists. Sunday's special. It's the Lord's day. But Sunday, nor Saturday, are the Sabbath like God's people in the old covenant had. That has ceased. The Sabbath in the Old Testament, fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, was a cycle of work and rest. And it was total rest. In the Old Covenant, you couldn't even pick up a stick on the Sabbath. That would be considered work. One guy picked up a stick on the Sabbath in the Old Testament. He was carried out and stoned. He was killed for it. Why? Why would God establish such a picky rule? Why would he apply it in such a stringent way? Why would the punishment be so harsh? Because it was a symbol, like the diet, like the days. It was a symbol. This symbol told us that you can't even pick up a stick of your own righteousness and bring it to God as a commendation of yourself, a reason for him to accept you. 
No, the Sabbath said rest, rest, don't work, don't work, rest, rest. And then Christ comes and he uses these terms to talk about how we approach him. What he's really getting at is there are two ways to approach God. And the Sabbath pictured that. The question is, do you come to God working or resting? In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary from work, heavy laden from carrying your burden. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Don't you think his Jewish audience, steeped in Old Testament language, would have heard that, and the Sabbath sirens would have gone off. They would have known what he's saying. They would have understood. He's saying he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament Sabbath. So for Christians, every day is the Sabbath. Every day we rest in him. Every day we, we discount the sticks of our own righteousness, and we trust Christ's righteousness alone. Friend, that's the gospel. That's what Christians believe. That's what they've banked their life and all eternity on. Have you gotten to the point where you feel weary, heavy laden? You've tried to work your way. You've tried to work your way to please mom and dad or to please a girlfriend or to please a boss or to please God. And it feels hopeless. Good. You're almost there. Christ is your rest. Come unto him and find rest for your weary bones. You're not there yet? Keep working. Keep working. That's, that's all I can tell you. Read the Bible, see what it says, but go ahead and keep trying that economy of work to get God's favor or to find acceptance from someone else besides him. Neither accomplish much. The answer is in Christ. Now, the third thing here is an explanation. In verse 17, Paul talks about shadows versus substance. He says, these things, these things he's just mentioned, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, this language of shadow versus substance It's a a classic distinction. I think it's Plato who first used this language. What he's saying here, Paul borrowing this classic phrase, is that the Old Testament practices of food laws, festivals, a calendar, the weekly Sabbath, these are a shadow in God's plan. Now, they're a God-given shadow. God gave them. Let's not mistake that. God gave these shadows, but they're shadows. They had their place. They had their time. Christ, the substance, has come. Now, Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 both use this language of shadow and substance. There it says that the Old Testament priesthood was a shadow. And Christ is the high priest, the real high priest, who enters into the temple, the holy of holies, with a perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 10 says the Old Testament sacrifice system was a shadow. But the sacrifice has come, the substance of Christ, and his finished sacrificial work has come. The shadow vanishes away. Now, I don't know of any Christian 
who thinks that the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament sacrificial system are still, for today, they're still in place. Well, the same has to be true, the things listed in Colossians 2.16. Same language, they're a shadow. Christ, the substance, has come. So I've used this illustration before. It's maybe worth repeating. You know, when you're at home alone and you see a shadow down the hall, a shadow of a person coming, it tells you something, right? It has its place. It has its purpose. It's useful. It's telling you something. Someone's coming. And either that's going to be someone you know and trust and you're glad that they're here, they're now home, or it's a burglar, And that shadow's a very bad thing. But regardless, whether it's good or bad, it's telling you something. But regardless of whether it's good or bad, when the substance shows up, when the person peers around the corner, the shadow isn't of any use anymore, is it? The shadow becomes so much less significant. Whether it's a bad guy you need to fight or a wife you need to kiss... You don't fight the shadow. You don't kiss the shadow. You don't stare at the shadow. Once the person shows up, you don't talk to the shadow. You hardly notice the shadow. It did its purpose. Well, that's Paul's very point. In fact, he uses a play on words. When he says shadow and substance, he doesn't use the typical word for substance in the original language here. He uses the word most usually translated as body. In Colossians, he's been emphasizing the bodily-ness of Christ. Christ came in body. He came as a person. He didn't come as an aberration. He didn't come as a spirit. So proof that the substance of our religion has come is that Christ came in substance. That's a pun. He came in bodily form. No more shadow. The person is standing right before us. So, things of the Old Testament Mosaic law have changed. It doesn't mean that there isn't any longer law or command for the Christian. No. Plenty of places talk about the law of Christ. Jesus gives us commands and he uses that language. We're told to discipline ourselves unto godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. So we have to conform. We have to obey. We have to follow. We even have to do it when we don't want to we are to walk in newness of life but again some things have changed about the old testament law with the coming of christ the content has somewhat changed the purposes of that law have somewhat changed even the lawgiver has changed in a sense many verses contrast moses the lawgiver of the old covenant with christ the lawgiver of the new the tenor has changed the old testament law was revealed on mount sinai And there the mountain quaked, right? Lightning and thunder at the top of it, dark clouds and fire. And the message was clear, don't come near. You can't touch this mountain or you'll die. But in the new covenant, God has written his law on our hearts. It doesn't get more intimate and more personal than that, does it? Jesus gave us a yoke and a burden which is light. Love that in Matthew 11. All right, now this last thing. Paul's last point is one of elaboration. He asks the question, where's the power? 
He gets real practical. Now, we'll come back to this section, verses 20 to 23, next week. We'll talk about it more there. But the gist of these verses is this. Flee from mere externalism. You see, in verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Flee mere externalism. That's no religion. Jesus said in Mark 7, it's not that which goes into a man that defiles him, whether it's ham or from dirty hands. You don't get dirty from what goes in. The dirt is inside. The dirt comes out. So anger and bitterness and fighting, murders and lust, these things don't go into us to defile us. They come out from our already defiled heart. These things given in Colossians 2 are human precepts and regulations. See that in verse 22? According to human precepts and teachings. On the one hand, God gave some of these things, and so they're not just human. On the other hand, now in the new covenant, to keep these things, to push these things, to put them on the people of God, is merely human. It's merely Regulation. Their time has come and gone. The substance is now here. It showed up bodily. So see in verse 20, you've died to this kind of stuff, right? It's disconnected from you. And then look at verse 23 at the end, this phrase. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's no power. He elaborates his whole point on this. There, there's no power in this path. Oh, how ironic. These false teachers are promising a path that would sort of free people out of their earthly living, the bondage of low-life living, low-life religion. And actually it plunged them even further down into the clay. Fullness isn't had by Going back to the Old Testament. You're not more like Christ by being a little bit Jewish. You have fullness directly from Christ and only in Christ. So the defeat for sin isn't had by these made-up rules. Whatever your made-up rules are. Now for Paul, for these Colossians, a lot of it centered on going back to Old Testament law. Oh, we're above that, most of us here today. We just make up our own. Next week, we'll talk about the ones we make up. We'll talk about the most frequent, prominent, obvious pitfalls of legalism today in the 21st century American church. But let me just ask you some questions. How about you? I mean, is your religion one of mere externalisms? Have you been adding to God's word? Are you adopting your own kind of syncretism? A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of the Bible, a whole lot of something else. Have you started to wrongly judge a brother or a sister in an unbiblical way? Have you made up your law, set it upon others, and judged them accordingly? We'll talk next week about the dangers of that. You say, well, then where do we go for fullness then? If it's not in the laws, 
It's not in law. It was not just in how we act and our conduct and behavior. Where do we go for fullness? Because that's really what these false teachers were offering, fullness. And that's really what everyone around us, including ourselves, is seeking, fullness. Some want a religious fullness. Some want fullness of self. Some want fullness of stuff. Some want fullness of success. We're all searching for fullness. Christian, for fullness, we go to Christ. We keep going to Christ. We go to him in prayer, and we go to him in his word, and we go to him through and with his church because it's his body. And we keep going back to the gospel that freed us, which keeps giving us hope in our failures today and gives us hope and motivation for obedience tomorrow. The gospel, we never improve upon it. We never get beyond it. We keep standing on it. And we talk about it. We proclaim it to a world which Jesus is reconciling to himself. The gospel and the, Christ, in the reign of Christ shapes our life, even down to the small things which are huge things. Marriage, family parenting, Job, church, serving. Well, that sums up about all of my life. Christ is to be Lord in all these things. He's to be seen as preeminent. And we're to keep doing this until he returns. Be faithful. Look to Christ. Find your hope in him.